Amen. Matthew chapter 10. I forgot to mention this this morning, but again, the theme of the book of Matthew is that Jesus is the king. He's the one and only king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. We borrow our six-point outline for the book of Matthew from Dr. J. Vernon McGee. We've gone through the person of the king in chapters 1 and 2. We've gone through the preparation of the king in chapter 3 through chapter 4, verse 16. And we've just finished the propaganda of the king in chapter 4, verse 17, all the way through chapter 9, verse 35. And now we've entered into the program of the king. How does the king of kings extend his propaganda, if you would, his message? How does he send this to go out? And we're going to find this in chapter 9, verse 36, through chapter 16, verse 20. And here in chapter 10, we know that when Scripture was originally written, Matthew did not stop and put different numbers between each sentence or put chapters in each chunk of Scripture. It was one long scroll that was written, but so that we can study Scripture easier, somebody wrote in all these little numbers so I can just say, hey, turn to Matthew chapter 10, and everybody knows where to go to, no matter what Bible version you have application, iPad, iPhone, or Bible. So here in Matthew chapter 10, the full context actually starts in verse 35 of chapter 9, and we'll begin reading there. It tells us, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes... He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And when he had called the twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. And the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So at the end of chapter 9, we see Jesus sees these multitudes, and he's moved with compassion. He tells the disciples that the laborers are few, therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Then perhaps the the disciples pray, and then what does Jesus do? He says, you're called. You are the laborers. He doesn't call in a missions team from Jerusalem. He doesn't call in a missions team from some other area. He calls these men to him, these men that have hopefully been praying, Lord, send more laborers to the harvest, and he calls the very men that have been praying. And usually that's what the Lord does. He stirs up a burden in our heart, and then he calls us and enables us to deal with that burden, to deal with that situation. And it's so interesting, the ragtag group that Jesus calls here. 
He's the son of God. He had his pick of the litter, but he didn't choose 12 men from the University of Jerusalem. He didn't choose 12 men that were sitting under a top rabbi within Israel. He chooses a group of fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot, and again, a ragtag group. Imagine if you were tasked with changing America, and you say, hey, you got 12, 12 picks. You could pick anyone and anyone in the world you want, right? Who would you pick? Maybe you look for someone with the biggest YouTube following, the manliest man's podcast, right? Whatever the case may be, maybe you'd pick the top of the top. Who has the biggest following? But here, in a sense, Jesus, right, no offense, he goes to Hialeah and he grabs 12 guys from there, right? <laughs> he goes to central Florida. He goes to Ocala and he grabs 12 guys from there. He goes to a rural fishing village and he grabs a group of men from there and he says, hey, with these 12, we're going to change the world. We can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. And we'll see the type of men and women that God loves to call and pick for his work and for his purposes. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. I think many people, they either find comfort in this scripture or they take offense to this scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, it says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh... Not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. I believe God, when he chooses a man, he likes to pick him and says, oof, I'm going to get all the glory out of this one. This guy, he's going to be moving, he's going to be doing things, but all the glory will go to me. Again, Jesus could have had his pick of the litter. He could have picked the top of each class. He's the son of God. He has all these powers. He has all these miracles. And yet he chooses a group of fishermen, one backstabber, one tax collector, and once again, a ragtag group. We also know that this choice wasn't just at random. It wasn't if Jesus was just going through Capernaum. He's like, oh, snap, I got to pick 12 guys, you, 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 and you. In fact, in Luke chapter 6, we can turn there. This is Luke's account of this same portion of Scripture we're going through in Matthew. And in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, it tells us, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. We'll take a brief pause, but how important it is for us. If it was important for Jesus Christ in the busyness of Israel in 3 AD, right? 
How much more is it important for us in the busyness of the world we live in to detach from the busyness, detach from the city, and go out into nature and pray? So important for us. So he goes out to a mountain and pray. Then he prays all night long to God. And then at verse 13, when it was day, he called his 12 disciples to himself. And from them he chose 12 whom he also named apostles. These men were not just random. These men were in fact prayed over the entire night before. Lord, you really want me to to choose Judas? We all know where this is ending, Father, right? You really want me to to call Peter? You want me to call Simon? I'm going to literally call him Satan. Is that who you want me to call? James and John, these sons of thunder, Lord, they want to fry people. They don't want to save people. They want fire raining down from heaven. Lord, these 12 guys, what was the 12 disciples' favorite subject of conversation? Themselves. They were constantly arguing who's the greatest among us. I don't know if they were having push-up competitions in between ministry or, or what was going on. But these men were not the, the brightest or the sharpest or the best. But they were available to the Lord. They were disciples. We're going to look into that word and what it means in a moment. And then he called them. Right? What, what's your excuse for not being a part of the Lord's work or the Lord's business? He calls absolutely anyone and everyone that has a humble heart and is wanting to follow him, wanting to serve him. After calling them, he next empowers them. Back to Matthew chapter 10, after he's called these 12 disciples, it tells us he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. And even though this group of 12 was ill-equipped and weak and foolish, he was going to empower them to be able to be more than able to accomplish his task and his work. God does not call those who are equipped. He equips those that he calls. And if you truly have been called by God, you will be equipped for the task at hand. What God is looking for is a vessel that will give all the glory to him. In our work for the Lord, do you take the glory to yourself? Or are you giving all the glory to the Lord? Lots of so-called apostles today, right, or false teachers, they'll take this scripture and say that if you're a Christian, you have to have this power over unclean spirits, power to cast them out, power to heal all kinds of sickness, and power to heal all kinds of disease. This is where it's important to research the Greek here. The word power is the word authority. Jesus gave them authority over the unclean spirits, sickness, and disease. It's different than the word power that we see for the power of the Holy Spirit throughout the rest of the New Testament. Is this word dynamos, where we get our word dynamite or dynamic power from. This dunamis power is the word in the Greek, which refers to the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of every believer. You see, Jesus gave these men a specific mission, and we're going to see that in a moment. This is not our normal gospel calling and sending. This was a very specific mission that Jesus gave these 12 men. And he gave these 12 men a very specific authority 
for this specific mission. It's also a bit concerning for us because even Judas Iscariot was given this specific authority and dominion over unclean spirits, sicknesses, and diseases. Did Judas raise people from the dead? Did Judas cast demons out? Did Judas heal the sick? Perhaps. There's no doubt he was empowered to do so. And then how much more concerning is it for us? As Jesus says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, in that day, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did I not do this in your name? Did I not do that in your name? And he will reply to them, depart from me. I never knew you. It's all about having a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's all about having a relationship with God the Father. It's not about what you do. It's about who you know. And do you truly know the King of kings and the Lord of lords? In verse 2 through 4, we get the specific list of these disciples. If you want to go in depth, I encourage you to download the CC Philly app. Joe Foshi goes in depth in each and every one of these men, their relationships, their backgrounds. It's a great study. For our sake of time, we're going to try to get through it a bit further. We see that these disciples were first mentioned as disciples in verse 1. Now in verse 2, what are they called? Apostles. So they've gone from disciples, now they are apostles. The word disciple describes a person who learns from another by instruction, whether it's formal or informal. Discipleship includes the idea of one who intentionally learns by inquiry and observation. A disciple not only accepts the message of a leader, but he takes that message and now he shares it and preaches it to other people as well. Typically in a Jewish world, a disciple would voluntarily join a school or seek out a master rabbi. Jesus here, he turns the tables and he seeks out and chooses those that he desires to be his disciples. Are we disciples of Jesus Christ? I think that's truly what we should be able to say. Are we a disciple of Jesus Christ or are we not? Christian, eh, so many people within the United States claim Christianity, claim they're Christians. Can we truly say, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ? I am in an apprenticeship with Jesus Christ. That's more biblical. The word apostle, simply put, is a sent one. Someone who's sent out. If you... Get your mail, right? you give it to the UPS guy, you can say he's your apostle because he's going. you're sending him out to go and deliver your mail. This apostle, it's someone sent forth from another, a delegate, a commissioner, an ambassador. It is someone who's sent out with a mission and authority of the one who sent him. This word today, it's taken for another meaning. There are many who claim to be apostles today. And they think because they use that word apostle, now all of a sudden they have specific power and authority over others. Be careful with those who demand to be called apostles. I liken it to be careful with those. I haven't met anyone at the church that's like that. Hopefully no one at the church is like that, right? You have to call me by the name doctor. I am a doctor, right? My doctorate is in underwater basket weaving, but you have to call me doctor, right? Be careful of that. We see throughout the pastoral epistles, so often they call themselves a doulos, a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ. But here we see that in order to be sent out from Jesus Christ, we must first be 
a disciple? Are we sitting under our master? Adam Clark says, men must first be taught of God before they can be sent of God. Have we learned from him? Are we abiding in him? John 15, verse 4 and 5, Jesus puts it so simple for us. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Family, there's a great work to be done for the Lord. And as believers, we should want and desire to be a part of God's work. And if we are a part of His work, and if we're found faithful, we will receive eternal rewards for the work that we're doing for Him today. Are we abiding in Him? That's the only way we can go and do anything for Him. It's by abiding with Him, spending time with Him. I believe it speaks of an intimacy here. The, the branch and the vine, they're intimate. They're interlocked into one another. I like to take a bite and just think of putting your head on someone else's shoulder. Right? You're just there and you're just hanging out. You're abiding with them. And now you do that with someone you're intimate with. I right? see so some of the husbands and wives here. You have your head on their shoulder. It'd be pretty strange if it's your first time at church and a random stranger just goes, <laughs> Right? What's wrong with this church? Must be a cult. What the heck is going on here, right? We need to be intimate with Jesus Christ. Are you comfortable with him? Are you comfortable with his word? Are you able to just sit down, say, Lord, I don't like reading, but I love you. And the way I get to know you is by going through your word. I love the way David Guzik puts it. He says, the abiding in Jesus Christ is the way we abide with our cell phones. Right? Many of us, we wake up, what's the first thing we do? What did I miss, right? We're sitting there, we're eating our breakfast, we're watching something while we're doing it. We're brushing our teeth, we're going through our emails, we're watching the news. We're constantly going to the phone for information, information, sending information, receiving, always going to the phone. Is that our relationship with Jesus Christ? Are we constantly going to him to download information and to send information? Lord, what would you have for me today? Lord, help me, help me to be in the spirit and not in the flesh this morning. Lord, help me as I get ready for work. Lord, help, help my kids, help my spouse. Lord, help me. Lord, what do you want me to do today? May we abide with him. That's the only way that we will bear much fruit. Now, many claim to be apostles today. Many claim to be messengers sent on behalf of God, but there's no way they can claim the authority of these apostles. These apostles, they needed to have been witnesses and have seen, been around during the baptism of Jesus Christ and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Today, there might be B-apostles or C-apostles. Most of them, if we're honest, are F-apostles, complete failures. But they were only true, 12 true apostles. These men minus Judas, many see Paul as Judas's replacement for the 12, will have a lot to do with what we're doing here this morning. We'll have a lot to do with the future, and we'll have a lot to do with our future future in heaven and in the new Jerusalem. The church itself, Ephesians 2.20 tells us, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. 
Us today, 2023, we are here because of number one, the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, and then the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. As Jesus is picking these 12 guys, he's thinking about us here this morning. He's saying these guys are going to be the leaders to go out and grow the church, lead the church. America wouldn't be here if it wasn't for these 12 guys. And what we see here is Jesus would take chances on people. He took chances on people. These guys, they weren't equipped for this. They weren't ready for this. They were constantly failing. But Jesus would take chances on people and show mercy and grace. The very foundation of church is built on the apostles and prophets and Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. In Matthew 19, verse 28, we see that these 12 men will also be sitting on thrones alongside of Jesus, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He tells us in Matthew 19, 28, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Finally, Revelation 21, verse 14, it says, Now the wall of the city, this is the new Jerusalem, at the end of Revelation, had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So next time someone claims to be an apostle and you're close enough to them, you could turn to these three scriptures and say, Is your name going to be written on the foundation stones, right, of the new heavens and the new earth? These 12 men are mentioned specifically in four different lists throughout the New Testament. We just read this list in Matthew 10, verse 2 through 4. It's also in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 16 through 19. Also in Luke's account, chapter 6, verse 13 through 16. And then finally, as these men are obedient to waiting in Jerusalem until they're endued with power from on high, waiting for the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1, verse 13, we're given a list of 11 because Judas has already committed suicide and is no longer with the disciples. Every list always begins with Peter. Peter is seen to be the leader of this group, and he's also the oldest of the group. Each list also ends with Judas, Perhaps the writers not really wanting to write his name, but knowing that they have to because it's the Word of God and the Holy Spirit leading them to write it down. The 12 people that Jesus chose after praying all night were these 12 men. And it's so interesting, most scholars believe and tell us that these were all men in their 20s. Young adult men here, what are you doing for the kingdom of God? John is known to be either 16 or 17 years old as he's following Jesus. Peter's the oldest. Some believe he's maybe in his early to mid-30s. And these 12 young men, God completely changed the world upside down. Right side up, however, right? And yet so much boldness, so much power because they were dependent and reliant on the Holy Spirit. Young men here, what are you doing for the kingdom of God? He wants to use you. He desires to use you. He's looking to and fro for a man that he can show himself strong on behalf of. But we have to be abiding in him. We have to take his work seriously. And we have to be about his business. There's also one key similarity here for these 12 people that God chose that Jesus prayed all night and picked is that they were all men. This is an indication that God has chosen men for the role of church leadership. 
There's no doubt that all throughout Scripture, women were used mightily in Jesus' ministry. Mary, his mother, Mary Magdalene, Salome, even Martha and Mary, and so many other women were used mightily in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Also, in Jesus' most difficult times, the women were more spiritual and more faithful than even the 12 disciples and apostles. It was a group of women at the cross. It was a group of women who first witnessed the empty tomb. Yet for whatever reason, perhaps because he chooses the weak and foolish things of this world, he has chosen men for the role of leadership within the church. Our God is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. This is his title. His self-proclaimed is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. He has chosen a patriarchy for the role of leadership and not a matriarchy. Even though you can find tons of women that were faithful and used mightily for God and the kingdom of heaven throughout Scripture, you cannot find a scriptural basis for female pastors and women leaders within the church. You just can't find it in Scripture. Verse 5 through 7, these 12 sent out, these 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you see the difference of this specific mission and our mission today? No? Maybe? Maybe so, right? We know that Jesus was going around the cities and villages teaching and preaching. We know that at the end of chapter 9, he saw that the multitudes had no shepherd that taught them out of love. He uses two adjectives here at the end of chapter 9. When he sees the multitudes, he says they were weary and scattered. Another word that is used there for weary is that they were abused, they were chastened, they were taken advantage of. And as Jesus sees the household of Israel that has been taken advantage of, that has been used, that has been scattered abroad because of the lack of true spiritual leadership in the religious leaders at that time, he now sends and enables his disciples to go out and preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is a very specific mission that Jesus has his disciples on. And it's not the same as our mission that's found in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 through 20. There Jesus, he tells us, he tells all the disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We also see in Mark 16, verse 15, he tells them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This was a specific mission, and that's why he gives them a specific authority. He commands them to go after the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jeremiah 50, verse 6, we get a prophecy from Jeremiah that's from the Lord. And he tells us, my people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from the mountain to the hill. And they have forgotten their resting place. 
Jesus had seen the multitudes as sheep that had no shepherd that cared for them and that loved them because the religious leaders were just using and abusing them, seeing what they could take and get from the sheep. They were not tending them out of compassion. They were completely neglected spiritually. So now Jesus, he takes these 12, he tells them, pray. Then he calls them, and now he enables them to go and minister to the lost sheep of the household of Israel. And now what's their message? What's their power in verse 7 and 8? As you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Our Lord's message is so clear. And for us today, we have to be clear at our message. Our message is the gospel, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and we need to repent. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, this is where Jesus, he picks up his message. Really, John the Baptist, he's the one that goes before him, and now he picks up that same message, same message from of old. Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now this was the same message for the disciples to deliver. Plus God has now given them power or authority to back up this message. A new kingdom was coming and we need to repent before this new kingdom comes to pass. In Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 it gives us this kingdom, its mission. Matthew chapter 121 it tells us she will bring forth a son And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew chapter 9, verse 12, when Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Sick spiritually. This is our mission statement. We are here to bring people to Jesus so that they will be saved from their sins. We are here to go out to those who are sick spiritually and bring them to the great physician. David Brown says, A kingdom for which repentance was the proper preparation behooved to be essentially spiritual. Deliverance from sin, the great blessing of Christ's kingdom, can be valued by those only to whom sin is a burden. Is sin a burden to you? This morning. Have you realized the burden that sin is? Or are you still in the season that it's pleasurable for that short season? I hope and pray that you're at this season that you realize the burden and the weight that sin is upon our lives. And that you would turn and repent and cry out to the great physician. These disciples were sent out by Jesus Christ to seek out the people who acknowledged that they were sick and sinful and needed to repent and cry out to the great physician. And now check out the job description in the next verse. Jesus is looking for, in verse 8, anyone who can heal the sick, cleanse lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. How many callbacks would he get on this job description? Once again, this reveals to us that none of us are sufficient for these things. None of us are good enough. None of us in our own flesh or in the rules and regulations of men can handle the ministry that God has for us. 2 Corinthians 2.16 says this, Who is sufficient for these things? 
Family, we cannot handle the work that God has for us in our own flesh and in our own strength. Just as David, this teenager, could not take out Goliath, a 10-foot monster warrior, in his own natural strength. Neither could Samson, with a jawbone of a donkey, take out a thousand Philistines in his own flesh and strength. It needs to be the power of the Holy Spirit in us to accomplish his great work. None of us in our own strength can do any of these things. None of these 12 men in their own strength could do these things or even practice these things. Right? How, do you, how do you practice raising the dead? You can't. There ain't no way to do it, right? They'd kick you out of every funeral home, kick you out of every field. Right? That, that wouldn't work. Jesus calls us and then he enables us to do the ministry. Jeremiah 17 verse 5 warns us. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. We can't do the ministry in our own strength. If you're doing it in your own strength, you will fail. You will utterly fail and be burnt out. But if it's a work of the Spirit, the Spirit, it never dries up. In fact, Jesus tells us it's a, a geyser roaring within us, a fountain of living water flowing out. You won't burn out if you're in the ministry and you're being fueled by the Holy Spirit. In the flesh, it's impossible. But Matthew 19, 26 tells us that Jesus says, With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So how would these disciples survive? How would they provide from themselves? How much was a disciple to charge for their own hard work and labor? And the verse 8, freely you have received, freely you should give. They received this power freely by the Lord. They weren't to say, hey, anybody need anybody raised from the dead for the low, low price of? Nothing like that. And sadly, so many false teachers today, it's exactly that. Send in your note with this much money, and then this is going to happen. Send in this, and then this is going to happen. No, freely you have received, freely you should give. Adam Clark says, what a scandal it is for a man to traffic with gifts which he pretends at least to have received from the Holy Ghost, of which he is not the master, but simply a dispenser. He who preaches to get a living or to make a fortune is guilty of the most infamous sacrilege. And sadly, most of these so-called apostles today, they are living and doing ministry in order to make a fortune. Not just to survive, not just to provide, but to make a fortune. Verse 9 through 10, these apostles, they, they, this is where they disconnect and they break apart from the context of the text. Verse 9 and 10, Provide neither gold nor silver, nor copper in your money belts, nor a bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. It's interesting. Jesus didn't start a GoFundMe before he sent them out. He didn't say, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about starting this ministry. If you give me some money, then I'll go out and do it. No, they were to take a step of faith. They were to go out only with the clothes on their back, be faithful, and watch the Lord provide for them. And ministry will look different for each of these disciples at different times. And ministry for us, it's going to look different each time. In Luke twenty-two thirty-six, this is the way ministry would look for the disciples after Jesus ascended and is more applicable to us today. 
In Luke 22, verse 36, it says, Then he said to them, But now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. So Jesus, he was into protection, right? If you don't have a sword, sell one of your extra cloaks and buy one. Now, if you want to be biblical, verse 37, they say, hey, we got two swords. Should we buy more? He says, nope, you got enough. So if you got more than two weapons, you got enough. You don't need any more, right? Your wife will tell you to be biblical and sell the rest, right? <laughs> Ministry will look different in different seasons. We, we can't just take one text and just apply it to every single solitary thing. Nor can we say, I once did ministry like this when I was 18 years old. This is the way I'm going to do it exactly for the rest of my life. That didn't even happen when Jesus was on earth. How dare we think we could just replicate what we've always done. As long as it's not unbiblical, we need to be open to the moving of the Holy Spirit and how ministry will look different in different cultures Different places and different times. Charles Spurgeon says, Different modes of procedure are to be adopted at different times. Oh, that some of our very spiritual brethren had a little common sense. You get mad at Spurgeon. He says, Jesus continues, he says, A worker is worthy of his food. A worker is worthy of his food. And it's a good work to be in the ministry. Paul tells Timothy it's a good work. Work requires labor. It's a hard labor. And it's a blessing when you can be in full-time ministry and your work is worthy of food. I know I'm blessed by it, but it is truly a work that needs to happen. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, such an important verse, it says, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. So good for all the moms here and all the teenagers here, right? You don't work, you don't eat. That's what the Bible says for the young men here as well. If anyone's not willing to work, then they shouldn't eat either. And if we're in the ministry, it should be a work, a busyness, a work. Sadly, there are many people that retreat to the ministry because in their heart of hearts, they are lazy and they couldn't do anything else. It is a work and people realize when you're not working. Right? Sometimes pastors and leaders, they lie to themselves and say, you know what, I could just wing it. No one will even notice. No, everybody notices, right? Everybody notices when you did not study and prepare for the Bible study. Children's ministry workers, if I could be honest, the kids notice when you don't study and prepare for the Bible study, right? What do you mean you don't know who that guy is, right? What do you mean you didn't bring the snacks? What are you talking about you didn't bring the snacks, right? They can tell if you did not prepare, Right? In worship, no matter where you're doing worship, the flock, the audience, the God's people can realize and see when you do not put in the work and prepare and study and practice ahead of time. It is a work. And our work for the Lord should be worthy of the food and of the hire. There are also some that think it's unbiblical for pastors or leaders to make a living in the ministry. Yet we know the Levites, the way they survived, they and their families, was through the tithes of the people. A few scriptures on this, Romans 15 verse 27, it says, It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. 1 Corinthians 9.11, Paul says, If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? 
Galatians 6, 6. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. And finally, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, Paul quotes Jesus here. He says, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, if your pastor is only teaching these four verses, you got to get a new pastor, right? But it is biblical for pastors and church leaders. If the church is able, depending on the flock, is able to provide for themselves and their families, it is a biblical thing. Verse 11. Now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there till you go out. Again, different forms of ministry for different seasons. Jesus tells them to inquire, do some homework before you get into that city. Find out who is, who's worthy and then stay there till you go. Now, worthy might not be the same worthy that we're thinking as what Scripture is trying to tell us. It's not talking about worthy like Thor with his hammer. He's not talking about that. He's also not talking about worthy like many of us do. I know I do. Before I stay in a hotel, I judge if it's worthy or not. I go online. I read the reviews. Three and a half stars. Bed bugs, not worthy, right? Next hotel, three stars. Cockroaches, not worthy. That's not what Jesus is speaking about here. He's not saying to go out and seek the most comfortable and cleanest and nicest and most expensive place to stay. Jesus is speaking about the spiritual character of the hosts of the home, not how many stars you would give in review of this home that's being opened to you. Christ wanted them to stay with people of good testimony in order to not stain their own testimony and weaken the power of the message that they were sharing. And then on top of that, they were to stay in that same house for the rest of their visit in that city, keeping their testimony pure and undefiled, not going out shopping around for who had the most beautiful home or who had the best food. Hey, I'm sorry, God's leading for me to stay in another house. I'll see you later, right? They got a pool and a backyard and a basketball court. This is where God's leading me to stay. That wasn't the case. Jesus told them, stay there till you go out. And sadly today, it, it is so sad we go and we visit different missionaries and they tell us of pastors that came. The missionaries giving their absolute best and a pastor will come and say, I'm not staying here. This isn't up to my standards. I can't stay in, in that pigsty. Again, what a black eye on the ministry. It is so sad. It is so terrible. We should judge the places that we stay in by the moral and spiritual character of the hosts. Not on the niceness of the place that we're staying in. Verse 12 and 13, and when you go into a house, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. We could turn quickly to Luke chapter 10, verse 5. And Luke's account tells us it's more than just greeting the house. In Jewish custom, they would greet one another saying shalom, which is peace. And if you wanted to give someone a double greeting or a double blessing, you'd say, shalom, shalom, peace, peace. And here, this is what Jesus is telling the disciples. To pronounce a blessing upon the homes that are being opened to them. In Luke chapter 10, verse 5, Jesus says, But whatever house you enter, first say, peace 
to this house. And this is one area I think that we're lacking in as Western believers. We've lost this art and this privilege of pronouncing blessing upon our brothers, our sisters, our spouses, and our kids. It's a blessing. I don't know if you've ever had a spiritual person staying in your house. I've had the joy of many different pastors, many men that are way more spiritual and closer to the Lord than I am. And when they pronounce a blessing over me or my wife or my kids or my home, it brings tears to your eyes. You sense the power of the Holy Spirit there. And we, I think we need to get back into the, the, the action of pronouncing blessing upon our families, upon one another. Not in a name and a claim it type way, but just, man, may the Lord go with you. May he be with you. Be blessed as you go to work today, honey. Kids, be blessed. May the Lord go with you as you go into school to remind ourselves that the Lord is with us and pronounce blessing and peace upon one another. Do not many of us need a little bit more peace today in our homes, at our jobs, in our workplace, in traffic? I could use more peace in traffic, right? I don't know about you. Pronounce those blessings upon one another. Verse 14 and 15, the reality of ministry. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake the dust from your feet. And assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. Did everyone accept this message? No. Did everyone accept the message from Jesus Christ himself? No. So now when people don't receive our message, we shouldn't melt into a puddle. Sadly, sometimes, like, man, I shared with them and they didn't receive it. Join the club. Happens to me all the time, right? It's just a part of the work. It's a part of the ministry. It's not a 100% conversion rate. If anyone was unwilling to accept the message, the disciples were to give a physical testimony to show the people or to show the city that they were now responsible to bear the weight of this message upon their own lives. This is a little bit different for our culture. In this culture, you would oftentimes give a physical representation of weight and responsibility being on someone else. The Jews, when they would walk through Samaria, before they'd get to Jerusalem or back to Israel territory, they would take their sandals and shake all the dust out from it to be a physical representation. They were not a part of those people. You could think of Pontius Pilate. When he goes to release Barabbas, what physical representation does he give to the crowds that he's innocent of the life and blood of Jesus Christ? He washes his hands there in front of everyone. Now, I don't know if this is applicable for us today. Perhaps the relationship you have with the person that you're sharing with, that there is a weight and an accountability to receiving the message of Jesus Christ and turning away from it. This truth has come in power and authority, literally people being raised from the dead, and yet there would be some who would reject the message. Some believe that verse 15 tells us of different levels of pain and judgment and torture in hell. Of that, I'm not sure of. I'm not willing to die on that hill. But biblically, there's no doubt that each of us will be judged and held accountable for the amount of knowledge and accountability we have when it comes to Scripture. And if I'm honest, that's a bit frightening for me. 
Because I have, I don't know about you guys, I've sat under a good amount of good biblical doctrine. And now I'm going to be held accountable for all the good doctrine that I've heard. You see, Jesus is telling them it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. Sodom and Gomorrah was fried. Fire rained down from heaven. And yet he's saying in the day of judgment, it's going to be more tolerable for them. The, the truth is who warned Sodom and Gomorrah? Their prophet, their messenger was who? It was Lot. Does anybody really like Lot? Any Christians like Lot? Anybody name their son Lot? You know, big lots, there's empty lots, right? But no, nobody calls their son Lot because most of us don't really like Lot. I'll be honest, I can't stand Lot. Whenever I read him, I get mad, I get bothered, I get ticked off. In fact, if we're honest, most of us wouldn't even think he was saved if Peter would not call him righteous Lot in his commentary on his life. You see, these cities and people are hearing the message from the Messiah himself and from messengers of the Messiah with power and authority to back it. Lot was a terrible messenger. His own son-in-laws didn't believe the message. His own wife didn't believe the message. He was a terrible messenger. So again, is this not a bit frightening and scary that each of us who have sat under good biblical teaching and doctrine, each of us that have the whole entire Bible, the people at this point, they only had the first five books. The apostles, they only had the Old Testament. We have the entire word of God and we are going to be held accountable for it. Are we ready for that day of judgment? He's going to say, I gave you all of this. I gave you all of my glory. Moses, he couldn't see his glory. We got to see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We've witnessed his glory. We're going to be held accountable for all of this. And what are we going to do with it? Are we going to be able to say, Lord, I'm humble, but I know I'm going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with five, you were, great, you were you're faithful with ten, you were just faithful with one. I gave you one, you couldn't handle that much, but you were faithful with that one, right? Or are we going to hear something different? I encourage you, today is that day where we got to be ready for him. Today is that day. We don't know if we're promised tomorrow. We're not promised tomorrow. Are you ready to see him? Are you going to be able to see him with a clean and clear conscience? Lord, I can't wait to see you and all the people that I love. Or is there a bit of fear there? Man, I'm not ready for that. I encourage you, as Jesus would say, repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Say, Lord, I'm sorry. I don't want to do these things. Lord, forgive me of these things. And go out and follow him from here on out. And perhaps for you, maybe it's just going about and being about your father's business. Maybe you've been afraid to take that step of faith, but your heart has been yearning. As Jesus, right, his bowels are moving. His stomach is turning for a need that he sees. we got to go out and be about our father's business. So may we be those disciples, abiding in him, spending time with him, so then he can call us, he can equip us, and then he can send us out to be about his business. So hey, the worship team can come on up and we'll pray and then we will be dismissed. You know, one last thing on repentance, something that I've been learning more and more in reading and studying, is oftentimes we paint repentance as this great protection from the wrath of God. Right? Maybe unfortunately you had someone in your life that was all turn or burn, you got to repent or you're going to hell, right? It's true 
But repentance, what we should realize is when we are unrepentant, when God has told us something that we know we should do, what we are doing is we are stopping the pure love of God in our lives. When we're unrepentant, we are plugging up the mercy and the grace and the relationship that God wants to have with us. It's not just about fire later on in hell. It's about today. You are blocking the pure, undefiled love of God being poured out on your life because you are stiff-arming the love that he wants to bestow upon you. Don't hold on to that sin. That sin is not worth it. I hope we've gotten to the point, you've gotten to the point in your life where that pleasurable season of sin is done and now you're feeling the burden of that sin. I pray actively, if any of you are in sin, you will feel the burden and the weight of that sin and you'll repent and cry out, Jesus, please take this burden off. Because that's a burden you don't have to carry. He wants to give you, he wants to take that burden and he wants to give you his yoke. And what does he say about his yoke? It's easy and light. So you don't have to walk out here tonight with that burden or that load of weight of sin. Come up front, pray with one of the pastors, let go of that burden, pick up his easy and light yoke. Hey, let's all pray. Pastors, if you come up, and we'll close in worship. Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord. Lord, we pray, Lord, we ask that it would be your kindness going out, Lord, and piercing each and every one of our hearts, Lord. For anyone here living a wasteful life, Lord, Lord, I pray that they'd run back to the Father this afternoon, Lord, that they'd cry out to you, Lord, that they would repent and just simply want to be a slave in your home, Lord. Lord, thank you, Lord, that you want to enable us, you want to equip us, Lord. You want to use us to work in our homes, our neighborhoods, our church, our county, our state, our nation, the world, Lord. Lord, we don't know why you want to use us, Lord, but we're just grateful that you want us to be a part of this great work. And Lord, we do. We pray for those who are hurting. We, we cry out, Lord. We pray for peace in Jerusalem, Lord. We pray for all the moms, all the dads, all the sons and daughters, Lord. So much heartbreak, Lord. So many atrocities happening there right now, Lord. We pray that you'd have your way there. And Lord, for us, may we be able to walk out of here this afternoon ready to see you face to face. Ready for that judgment day. So we love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.